Well, today we are blessed to have with us uh, Pastor Jason Belgrave and his family, his wife Carrie and his two sons, Atticus and Gabe. Uh, Jason is the pastor, as, as most of you know, at Westmount Bible Chapel in Peterborough. Um, he has been there, I believe, since 2015, where he came. Jason and I first met in 2012, two Canadians meeting in California at the Master Seminary, to our horror, in Hebrew class, but we, <laughs> but we did survive that. And so since that time, Jason has become a dear brother and friend, and we certainly want to say this. If you have friends or you're moving to Peterborough, you need to be in Westmount Bible Chapel. It comes with top recommendations from BBC. So BBC to WBC. All right. So we're going to call on Jason. Jason is a faithful expositor of God's word. And I invite him to come this morning and to share the word of God and what God has laid on his heart this morning for us. Well, thank you, brother. And I always get such a, a warm welcome. Uh, you don't even know what to say sometimes, right? You just feel like that's got to be a different person you're introducing there. But one thing I would echo uh, Bowenville Baptist Church, uh, and this is not just the reciprocation that you need to do, um, just the love and, and faithfulness in your pastor, Tony. I do remember, brother, that first Hebrew class for sure. As maybe you know, even if you just look at Tony and I, uh, we're in a similar season of life. So here you have uh, the two of us showing up in Hebrew class, right? And among some other young bucks. And, you know, the Lord brought us through that. He brought us through it. And, and here we are only by him. One thing I learned from your pastor, by the way, and it is so, so true, even as my family walked through the door today. Every time you're with the saints, you're home. He taught me that. And we are home. We're home today. Uh, it's just so good to be with you. Always so warmly welcomed here at BBC. And that's for a number of reasons. One of the things that's so refreshing, even as we sing and hear the voices, even as I see you, Christ is honored as Lord here. It's one of the things I, boys, keep us on track with these things at times as we uh, think about other churches and what's happening in the broader church. And one of the peace that we have coming here is that Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord in this place. Um, and not only that, even reminded in the service this morning already, the Word is revered here. How refreshing that is. The Word is revered. I can say this not just for my family, but for the Bowmanville Baptist Church family. We have worshipped the Lord in the splendor of holiness this morning. So praise God for that. And that's why we love this place. There's an understanding at BBC that we, the saints, are set apart, not just as people, but in our conduct on Sunday mornings. We must be. And not just by, by one branch, and I have to say this by way of final introductions uh, with Tony or receiving those introductions, you are taught week after week from Pastor Tony. So you know about holiness, right? I'm here to say nothing new this morning. But week after week, you're well-fed, well-taught. Holiness is in this place. So you know that. And brothers and sisters at Bowmanville, you love the Lord and you seek to follow him in all that you do. Is that not true? You love Christ and you want to pursue Christ in all that you do. 
And that heart's desire, of course, is an outflow of holiness. To be placed by the Lord, right? To be placed out of darkness into light and to be given a new heart is the pursuit of holiness at the beginning and right through. And has not that, think with me, Boneville, this morning, has not that always been the call of God's people? Has it not been always the case, as you think of Scripture? The the case has not been that I want to add claims of Jesus to my life. That's everywhere today, is it not? I'm just going to add claims of Jesus. The call has always been to conform your life to God. That's the call. And beloved, consider the Old Testament with me. I want you to consider this morning the Mosaic Law. I want you to consider that. Embedded in the Old Testament law is this well-known command. Hear it from Leviticus 19.2. Yahweh says what? Israel, you shall be holy for what? I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's right in the law. God says, I am holy. Logical inference, outflow, thus this. I am holy, thus my people must be holy. That's the logic, right? If we are God's people, then we must be holy like God. Very straightforward. Now let's pull the lens back one setting and look at the giving of the law, which is, of course, recorded in the book of Exodus. And that's where we'll be this morning. That's one book back from Leviticus. Turn with me to Exodus 19. We won't be there uh, this morning. We'll be in chapter 3, but let's start in Exodus 19. Of course, this book... I believe saints needs a little introduction. What is going on in the book of Exodus, fresh off the deliverance of God's people recorded in the early chapters. They've been supernaturally delivered by Yahweh. Here they are at the mountain, all right? And they're going to encounter God's presence. But more than that, he will call them to himself and give him the standard, give them the standard that is himself. This is the standard of holiness. It always is. God says me. So listen, look at verse 1 in chapter 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel." That, of course, look at those verses with me. That, of course, not just the context of the law given, but the context of the book of Exodus. Again, a people delivered. And remember what was said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can do what they like. Let my people go so that what? They can go into the wilderness and worship me, God says. And here it is. And this is how we worship. In the splendor, in the recipe, in the prescription of holiness. This is what we'll see. This is it. And of course, the law is about to be unfurled. But the key here, again, when we think about holiness, look down in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So important. A holy nation. 
I'm giving you a law so that you will be a set-apart nation unto me. Defined as, and what is that defined as? Look at the actions in verse 5 that you would obey my voice. One, keep my covenant. Two, this is conduct. And BBC Saints, I want you to see this as we begin. Being called by God is not just a call, right? Look at verse 5. Being called by God is a call to conduct, obedience, and devotion. Do you see that? Being called by God is a call to conduct. Call to conduct. Being called by God is not a label. Being called by God is not your Christianity badge that you throw on your scout's lapel. Say, oh yeah, and by the way, and I'm a Christian too. Being called by God is not an add-on in any way, shape, or form. It's a call to holistic conduct. Your entire life conformed to God. Being called by God thus is a call to holiness. It's a call to be set apart. And again, the law will soon unfold that for Israel. This is what it means to be a holy nation, Yahweh will say, as he gives the law. Now this call, as it's recorded in Exodus, as you know, doesn't just begin here. This call by God. Christian, you know that this book opens with a picture of holiness. A very well-known picture of holiness, mind you. Let's turn to Exodus 3. And this is the picture you know well, and this is our residence this morning. The context, of course, after the opening two chapters, you've been introduced to Moses, right? And the way that he was supernaturally preserved. Of course, we have his exile out of Egypt, flees to Midian. He's been the shepherd now, tending sheep for the past 40 years. And, and we have this account that we'll pick up in a moment in chapter 3. So let's look at it and be reminded that this is God's call. Look down with me at verse 1. I'm going to read our text for this morning. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, a bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now... Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. BBC, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would take these words and you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things. 
Father, we pray you'd give us minds to understand, hearts to receive, and hands to live out the truths in these verses. Father, we beg and pray in Christ's name. Amen. A people, look at it, will be called to Yahweh through this one of God. First, Yahweh is calling through Moses. That's what we're going to see here. And this call on Moses from God is a template. It's a template for our call as well. That's what we want to look at this morning. God never changes. The call of God remains the same in principle, right? Time stamps not removed with different people in the program of God. The call of God, and this is what we're going to see, what he's calling Moses to, how he calls him. In principle, beloved, it never changes. In the first part of this chapter, we're going to observe four elements of the call of God. Four elements in the call of God in these first ten verses. Let's zoom into this text now. Let's look at verse 1 with our first element, and it's this, God's preparation. God's preparation. In verse 1, look at it with me, we're given the details needed to understand the immediate context here. So first, what do we learn first? We learn that Moses is a shepherd. See that there? He was keeping his flock. That's a very simple, straightforward way to say he was a shepherd. And not only was he a shepherd, Acts 7.30 tells us he was a shepherd for 40 years. Four decades shepherding. Now consider what we know Moses will do. Moses is going to be the one chosen by Yahweh to lead God's people out of Egypt. He's going to come face to face with Pharaoh, right? This is the preparation. Four decades as a shepherd. Four decades in the wilderness tending sheep in preparation to face Pharaoh. Basically the most powerful man of the time. I want you to think with me for a moment. Take leadership of any kind today and tell them, you're going to go into the biggest boardrooms. You're going to go to Wall Street, go wherever. Think about the most powerful domains that you can think of. And in preparation, I want you to grab this cane. I want you to get into the wilderness. I want you to tend sheep. Not for 40 days, for 40 years. And then you'll be ready to tackle what's going on in that boardroom. They might. If they stop laughing at some point, they may ask you to repeat what you just said, right? The world knows nothing of this preparation, right? That's how man thinks of preparation. They scoff at such preparation, right? But this is God's preparation. And we need to see this. What is God's preparation? Listen, loved ones, time. And not just time, lots of it. And then after some time, some more time. And then when you're done with that, more time to prepare. That's God's preparation. And not only that, inglorious work. Feed the sheep. It's well documented how dirty that profession would be. How intimate you need to be with the sheep. So time and in glory. That's how God prepares. Second, note Moses' place here. The sheep weren't even Moses' sheep. Did you catch that? Whose flock is this? It's Jethro's flock. Amazing. Some might think, sure, Moses in the wilderness, okay, fine, this is an intensive training, but it's his wilderness work. Give him a little something that he can build himself. Give him ownership, give him possession, so he can feel like, you know, he's going to lead something. No, give him something that's not even his. 
This was another's flock. Moses was the sub-shepherd, the under-shepherd, the steward. So-called professional preparation today, again, would scoff at this. What do you mean that's not his own? He's got no skin in the game. He has nothing that's his. Taking care of someone else's stuff. Yeah, man laughs, but God says, that's my preparation. That's the way I prepare my people. Taking care, note at Bowmanville, taking care of something that is not your own. And then we would say by implication, and how do you handle that? How do you handle that? Stewardship. Of course, the good Christian recognizes nothing is my own, right? There's absolutely nothing that's your own. Thirdly, note the activity. Moses was actively, note that, leading the flock across the wilderness. All of this in verse 1. Moses is not just biding his time. He's not just waiting on a preparatory sign from the Lord. I'm just here, I'm waiting for the Lord to speak to me. Moses is not looking back to Egypt and he's not looking ahead to what's next. He's leading right now. Do you see that? Moses is busy at work. Moses is diligent with his lot. Moses is getting at it. I've heard it said, and I believe this more than ever, I think Pastor Tony would agree, after years of ministry, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Right? If you want something done, give it to someone because they get it. They're getting it done. They're busy. They're not waiting for something. They're getting it done. In some sense, that's true here. Moses is not sitting on the rock in Midian just waiting. So for an impression, for a feeling of what to do next, he's doing He's engaged responsibly in the work that is laid before him. He's not analyzing the work. He's not looking forward backward. He's doing the work now. And mark this church, this is what you see every time in God's preparation. Someone doing. It's not the big dreams and visions then. You know those folks? Oh, this is what, I, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting. This is what it's going to be then and out there and in the future. And I just got to wait and it's going to be No, it's not that. God's preparation is the now, the little, the mundane, the pedestrian. Right now, this is what I'm doing. Interestingly, in that activity, Moses so happens to lead the flock where? Look at the end of verse 1. Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, which is a precursor pointing to what's going to be ahead in Exodus on this very mountain. Of course, that's an imminent encounter, the giving of the law, the glory of God revealed all here on Horeb or Sinai. So let's pause now just for a moment, BBC, and recap God's preparation for a moment. Number one, Moses is a shepherd, remember, for 40 years. The lowly, messy occupation of tending sheep. An occupation, by the way, we need to note this as we're reading through Genesis, Exodus. Genesis 46, 34 tells us shepherding was despised by the Egyptians. I remember times they would look back and want to be back in Egypt. One thing the Egyptians hated, it was shepherding. Despised by the culture, the world, if you would. In other words, God prepared Moses by engaging him in unpopular work that no one else wanted. We could say it and pull implication from it. Unpopular work that no one else is willing to do. That's how he prepared Moses. Two, by way of recap, Moses is a shepherd for someone else and faithful in it, 40 years and still active. Of course, Jesus tells us what? That one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Luke 16.10. 
I often marvel at the desires for big and grand responsibility that so often come amid the mishandling or even rejection of the small and less glamorous ones. It's been said so famously, no one wants to clean toilets, they just want to pick the toilets that are installed, right? Brothers and sisters, God does not skip steps or make special exceptions in calling. Listen, God is about lasting, sustainable, genuine preparation and more. Think back with me for a moment. If God, and you know this account, remember? Remember Moses in that Egyptian execution, right? In Exodus 2, and that heroic save in front of Jethro's daughters in front of the well. Remember that? Remember those two big bravado acts? Imagine if you just took Moses from that and you put him in ministry. That's right. That's got downfall written all over it, doesn't it? Straight from that testosterone right to ministry. In fact, it would be an epic crash, just imagine, because we see it all the time today. Guys not prepared, not ready, and tending sheep. God's preparation, listen, requires time, humiliation, stewardship, and activity. Vital raw ingredients for God's preparation. True for all of us, for whatever our vocation and lot is today. Then and only then was this man of God, Moses, ready for what came next. And that brings us to our second point. So it's God's preparation. Secondly, God's presentation. Let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. The text says, look at it, An angel of the Lord appeared to Moses out of the bush. Now, we needn't linger here too long, but this introduction does warrant a comment. What or who is this angel of the Lord? He appears throughout the Old Testament. The familiar Old Testament reader recognizes that. Who is that? Is this Michael because of the fire? Or Gabriel because there's a message? Or some new angel? Well, the identity of this angel of the Lord is presented quite plainly. This is why so often we just need to read the text, right? Look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, who called to him out of the bush? God. Moses, Moses, he said. And of course, Moses says, here I am. Very plain there. Now, when we think about who is calling, we think about the fact that it is in plain sight. This is very clearly God calling to Moses. And now park that for a moment. So this angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. Often like here, when we think about reading in context, we're reminded of many things, and this forces us to dig even deeper. We think about later in chapter 23, we're going to see the same angel appear leading the Israelites. And we're told there, in verses 20 to 23, that God's name is in him. This is not something special. We don't need some big training to understand sometimes reading God's word. This is the Lord. This is the Lord. Even more, and let's leave one more, he has the power to forgive sins, right? Also, we'll see that later in this book. And of course, Mark 2 tells us who is the only one that can forgive sins. It is the Lord. 
Now, God's presentation is not just as an angel with fire, but look what else. God himself, in verse 2, we're told that God appeared out of the midst of a bush and more. Look at it. When Moses looked, he noticed that the bush was burning, but what supernatural thing? It was not being consumed. Do you see that? It was not being consumed. This is, yes, folks, a supernatural appearance. Wilderness bushes do burn. But here's the thing. Naturally, they burn up. They burn up. Certainly, that is more than enough to get Moses' attention. This bush is burning, which might have been common, but it's not burning up. Not burning up. And now with Moses, and this is how the Lord works, right? Getting our attention when he calls us. Moses' focus is now directly where God's presence is and God calls. Look at verse 4. The Lord saw that he had turned aside to see. God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Now again, this is where we want to really slow it down as we study God's word. A verse like this just warrants us to look very carefully at what's going on. You can glean so much theology oftentimes just out of one verse even in a narrative, yes, it's true. First of all, let's begin with the most obvious thing that we would observe in that verse. The call of God is initiated by who? God. Do you see that? God initiates this call. This is not Moses reasoning himself to God in the wilderness. You see that? This is God's initiation. This is not Moses thinking, you know what? I think I'm done with this profession. I need a career change. I need to shift gears. That's not what's going on here, is it? This is not Moses coming to God at all. Beloved, see this. This is God initiating and coming to Moses. Do you see that? Secondly, the call of God is no different to any other call of God in Scriptures. As you're reading the text, you would say, well, wait a minute. I see this all over the place. Let's just talk about the Old Testament. Do you remember Gideon in Judges 6? He was busy doing what? Threshing wheat. He wasn't looking for God, and then God did what? He called him. What about Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, called by God twice while he was asleep? Certainly there's your picture that he wasn't looking for God. It's God initiating with his prophets. Isaiah 6, it's God. Jeremiah 1, Ezekiel 2, God calls. God calls. The Son of God called his apostles. Remember they were busy, busy fishing and tax collecting? Mark 1. It's the Son of God that called Paul. Remember, he was busy violating and ravaging the church, wasn't he? He certainly wasn't contemplating the existence of God and finding him. Acts 9. All these calls in Scripture always, here it is, beloved, and we want to make sure we're clear on this, initiated by God to those not looking for God at all. You see that? And you know it's no different today to men and women of God Maybe like you and me. Is that not true? I want you to think back to your conversion. Really at the heart of your true conversion. You know this. You are not only not looking for God when he called you, but theologically you were what? You were dead. You had no spiritual pulse to look for God at all. And that's precisely why God's word confirms later, Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's impossible for a spiritually dead person to reason, to will, and to choose God. He can't. That's why God presents himself in this call. That's what Titus 3, 4 describes. 
Think about this principle, not just true in calling Moses to this time and vocation. This is true of salvation. Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, there it is, initiation, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He, note His action, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's first cause right there. God moves first when He calls His children. That first movement is what we see here with Moses. Moses wasn't looking for God, but God was seeking Moses. This is God's presentation. It's supernatural initiation by God alone. God's presentation is not only His initiation, but listen, it is clear, it's powerful, and it's effective. It's not a vague dream. It's not a maybe. It's a convicted call that demands a response. And speaking of response, look at the end of verse 4. All Moses can say is what? Here I am. We are powerless. Is it not true, Christian? We're powerless when God calls. That's an effectual call right there. We're powerless. Okay, with God's call, we've seen God's preparation, God's presentation, now God's placement. We continue in verse 5. Look at it with me. God's placement. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look at God. Saints, again, I want you to recall the call of God is what? It's a call to holiness. Remember that? The call of God is a call to holiness. The two go hand in hand. When God calls, He doesn't call. It's not an apologetic call. He doesn't call to say, oh, by the way, I exist and you really should acknowledge me. It's not a call for fire insurance. He doesn't say, well, you know, and I exist and by the way, so you don't go to hell, you know, you should just maybe acknowledge me. The call of God is always a call to holiness. Remember, a call to conduct. Every time. So the two go hand in hand. That's really important as we read through a text like this. The call of God is a call to holiness, as you see in this famous text. And we need to grasp this element of the call of God because God prepares and God presents himself. And God here places Moses on holy ground. He does it. That would be not on some special mountain in and of itself. You got the really choices of mountains or anything like that. No, but on this mountain ground that, listen, is now holy. Why? Because it's a special soil of Horeb? No, it's holy because God is there. You see that? That's the reason. It's holy because God is there. God dwells there. That's what makes this ground holy. Or listen, anything else, anything else with God's residence in it or on it is thus holy. That's why holy, the word means to be set apart, if you will. Something different. Because it is now of God. Like this building, there's not holy bricks that were put into Bowmanville Bible or Bowmanville Baptist Church, right? This place is holy because the saints are here. And God's presence is here. That's why this place is holy. The gathering of the saints. Nothing we will see of holiness in this passage will say less than that. To be holy is to be set apart because God is in it. Yet, friends, I want you to see that there's more than that here. Look with me. 
First, this call of God in Exodus 3 is not about God separating from man. God separating from man. Now, you know this. You know this thinking because it's the stuff of false religions. Allah separates himself from man. Is that not true? Not the God of creation and not the God of the Bible, right? That's not what this separation is. This is not a call where God says to Moses, listen, I cannot come to you, Moses, you feeble man. I cannot speak to you, you speck, nor can I cohabitate with you in this place because you're just so not like me. Is that what the text says? God comes down and he meets that speck, right? In fact, quite the opposite. God places Moses, listen, right into his manifest presence. Do you see that? God calls out to Moses and God tells Moses that the actual ground you stand on where God is, is holy Now, it is true, loved ones, look, that there's an initial separation defined here. You see that? God does caution Moses on drawing near. That's true, initially. And he does proceed to command Moses to remove his sandals. And people want to jump quickly to that, right? And we'll get there, of course, in a moment. However, what we need to observe here is that while separation is in the call, no doubt, right? You see it. It is in the call. It is not, separation is not the point of the call of God. You see that? That's not the point. It's in it, but it's not the point. In other words, God doesn't call us just to separate, right? He doesn't just say separate. Separation alone is the stuff of who? Cults. That's what cults do, and they do that very well, don't they? They can separate very, very well and create their own bubble. They do separation onto themselves. Is that not true? They separate onto themselves. Let us not, as some cults listen, even within so-called Christendom, have done. That's not here. As such, then, we continue. God does not keep this at a comment on holy ground. Let's look at it. God says what first? Look at verse 5. Take your sandals off your feet. Take your sandals off your feet. Church, this is not just separate. This is, look at it with me, this is separate and prepare to be in my presence. Do you see that? Separate and prepare to be in my presence. And this act of holiness, this moving beyond just separation, is what's so often missed with holiness. To illustrate, consider what you think of when you hear that command. I want you to do that right now. Just think, when you hear this classic command of Moses, you think, maybe, many do, Moses is not worthy, that his sandals are filthy, You know those ancient Near Eastern sandals? Oh, they would just be filthy. That God is so other than Moses and this gesture of removing the sandals is a sign of otherness. That's what you've heard. Now listen, that may be true. Certainly we're not disputing that that would be true. But that's not what's being communicated here. This is what we can't miss. What's noteworthy about this account, saints, is what God doesn't say. And here it is. This is what God doesn't God doesn't tell Moses to get a, go and get a whole bunch of extra sandals because you're going to need insulation and a cushion between a holy God. He doesn't say that, does he? Get a whole bunch of stuff, get some blankets to throw them in between the ground and your feet. Or he doesn't say go and fetch, you know what, go and fetch really clean sandals. Clean them up, shine them up, or even better yet, make new ones and then you're ready. Like the new wedding suit, right? He doesn't do that. That's not what he's saying. 
Not here. God says, instead of putting layers or buffers between your naked feet and my holy ground, what does he say? I want you instead to remove those sandals and look at it and have just your naked feet meet my ground. Do you see that? That's what he says. This is, beloved, nothing short of intimacy. You see that? This is intimacy. This is holiness. This is drawing closer, not divided separation. Hence, here in the call of God, we see that holiness is about our proximity to the presence of God. This is so important. Holiness is not just separation. Holiness at its heart is separation onto intimacy with God. Right? This is the key. The call of God places us closer to God and thus requires us to remove the things here in this moment, like sandals, that impede our intimacy with Him and are drawing close to Him. By the way, a couple of details in verse 6 confirm this intimacy. First, God says, I am the God of your fathers. In other words, I am the God you know. I'm the God of the line. I'm the God of the people. I'm your God. This is not a call of God from some foreign God, unknown God. Yahweh says, you know me. Your fathers know me. Secondly, look what Moses does in response, end of verse 6. And this is really telling. He hides his face. You see that? Why? Not because of intimidation, but because of intimacy. Because of proximity. That's why he hides his face. This is Yahweh manifest. This is amazing. This is Moses in a place he's never been before, called out by a holy God, and now intimate with a holy God. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He describes this holy intimacy, something like a bride and bridegroom getting close, physical and intimate for the first time. You can picture that vignette, can't you? For the first time, they behold the beauty of one another, and they want to hide their face. That's what's going on here. This is the call of God placing Moses into his presence and onto holy ground. Just like our call, Christian, the call to holiness. The call to holiness. One more element here, and it's God's promise. Let's turn our attention directly to verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Incredible language here. Let's look at it. The Lord says, I have surely seen. If we were to peel back and look at the original, we'll see that that surely is emphatic. Not just I have seen, I have surely seen. Yahweh's way to say I have. The Lord says also, look at it, I have heard their cry. If you were to turn back to chapter 2, you remember how that ended? Look at verse 23. This sets up this account. During those many days of the king, or during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now, is that a cry that goes unheard? Keep reading. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then what? Verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And here you have the underpinning for God hearing that cry and responding. What is it? Look with me. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. In other words, this... God remembered his promise. He heard the cry and he remembered the promise. God says, I have seen, I have heard, 
And I know he's not absent in Israel's plight here. God's not too busy onto other cosmic things. He is right there in the affliction, hearing the cries of his people, and he remembers the promise. And God says in light of that, now back to chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, I have come down, this is still to Moses, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It is his people's plight that moves God. Do you see that? And not only to move but to move toward a promise and to remember a promise. Let me read it for you in Genesis 15. This would have been hundreds of years later. Do you remember this promise in Genesis 15? Do you remember this to Abraham? The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Yes, that is true. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's exactly what's recounted in the book of Exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Indeed they do. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That is a promise, an ancient promise. Again, where the God that never changes remembers when he hears his people's cry in Exodus. The call of God to Moses here is a call that is made by way of promise fulfillment. Promise fulfillment. God had promised deliverance years ago. God had promised a land years ago. And here, by way of Moses, God begins to fulfill that promise. That's how God works all the time. Church, listen, the call of God is always motivated by the promise of God. God is not some fair-weather deity, not on a whim. Let's see what's going on in the universe today. God operates by sovereign decree, and everything he does, everything he does flows out of a cosmic ancient promise. Everything. And that's not only true here, but it's true always. It has impacts on you, Christian. True not just for Moses, but for brother and sister, you and me as well. Your call at conversion was a call of God on your life. Think with me. The call of God on your life, that moment of conversion, prepared by God, initiated by God, presented by God. Do you remember that? For the purpose, all of that, of fulfilling a promise. All of that, fulfilling a promise. And this was not a promise from God to His people for their deliverance, when you think about your life today. This was a promise from God to His Son, to the praise of His glory. That's why you and I sit here worshiping Yahweh today. Listen to this glorious New Testament truth, this new covenant truth. I'm going to read from Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, did you hear that? Our deliverance is Holy Spirit promise fulfillment to the praise of his glory. At some time in eternity past, God the Father said, I'm going to give a love gift to my son. And in that foreordinance was you, Christian. You, part of the bride, foreordained, here it is, promised to the son. Your conversion is not because of anything great you've done. It's because of a promise from a father to the son. Right? That's it. And your good works, if we go down to Ephesians 2.10, simply an outflow of that, of being foreordained and known by him. God's promise from the Father to the Son, our call church, is a fulfillment of promise. We must close, but before we do, let's be clear on this call of God one last time. The call of God, as we said off the top, has always been and will always be about holiness. As such, this is not just an Old Testament ancient call. In fact, you're getting peaks of that, as we just read in Ephesians, right? It's not just to Moses or to Israel. Holiness is the call of God to his people of all time. It transcends God's program in one sense. It's always the call of God, the call of holiness. The call of complete and utter devotion to God. That was the call to Israel, and it's the call to the church. It's always the call, Old Testament and New. This is the call of Christ. Do you know the call of Christ? Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Did you hear that? Jesus said, be separate even from your family, your bloodline, and be separate unto me. Jesus elsewhere defines such devotion as the sum of all that God commands. You've heard of Mark 12, 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. No, no fence-sitting in our devotion to God, right? That from Christ is about as clear a call to holiness as you'll find in the entire New Testament. And it not only stands in line with the Old Testament, but also sets the table for subsequent calls from those following Christ to come after Christ, like the apostles. What about Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, what? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That, too, is holiness. How separate and devoted to God are you, says Paul to the Romans. Romans 12 says you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He'll go on to say you're not conformed to the world, but to the will of God. That's holiness. You're conformed to the will of God. That's holiness. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That actually should be the truth of every Christian. When you leave this place in a few minutes, you're living out Christ with what you think, what you say, and what you do. Is Christ living in you? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, holiness equals Christ living in and living out of me. That's true of every true Christian. Life. That's a direct picture. And then, of course, a direct New Testament command. Bowmanville Baptist Church, you know this well. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Not too long ago, your pastor took you through this, right? You know chapter 4, verse 3. 
This is the will of God. Your what? Your sanctification, which is literally your holiness. The will of God is your holiness. This is the will of God, Christian, that you be holy. Everyone always says, I wonder what the will of God is for my life. What they kind of skip over is that you would be holy in everything you do. Be holy. There's so many more, but let me leave you with one final one that brings it all together. Old Testament and New, Israel and the church. The call for God's people always. 1 Peter 1, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written. And then the quotation from Leviticus 19, right? Going to the law, now applying it to God's people now. You shall be holy for I am holy. Still true for those called by God. That's what Peter is saying. Christian, that's it. There's no expiration on holiness. There's no, I did holiness for the first few years of my Christian walk. There's no, I was really on fire for the Lord in those first few years. There's no expiration on holiness. It's still the call today. Whether you have been living five minutes with Jesus or 50 years with Jesus. It's still the call on your life today. And so we must close with the question that's just hanging in the air. And it's hanging over this text. Do you know it? The question is this, what is impeding your holiness right now? What's blocking your holiness this morning? What sandals do you need to remove to draw close to God? What needs to go and what needs to go now? What needs to be shed and needs to be shed now? So that you not only separate, but here it is, beloved, you be separate and you draw close to God and be fully intimate and devoted to Him. I trust as the Lord reveals your heart, you will this morning yield to that call to be holy. Saints, let us answer the call of God to be holy. Not with reluctance. Can I make that final heartfelt plea to you? Let's not do it clinging onto the doorposts. Let's remove our sandals with joy. With joy. Let's throw them off. So that He may be glorified in our lives. Yes, His glory, listen, His glory shines through our holiness. His glory shines through our holiness. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for these truths in Your Word. When we think of the call of Moses, the call of Israel, and the call of the church that's still true today. Father, we thank You that... The call that you give is a call to be separate and fully devoted to you. Oh God, we beg and pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to remove sandals, to shed, Lord, so that we can draw close to you. That is our cry as we leave this place today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.